It's the Weekly Show with David J. Maloney. This week, David chats with director Michelle Danner. And now, here's your host, David J. Maloney. Our featured guest tonight has had an incredible career in the film industry, and her story involves so many colorful characters and some of the most well-known actors of our time. She studied acting under the great Stella Adler and has herself been an in-demand acting coach for some of Hollywood's best and brightest. She has now turned her attention to more directorial work with her most recent film, Miranda's Victim, starring Abigail Breslin, Donald Sutherland, and Luke Wilson, receiving rave reviews from audiences, critics, and across the festival circuit. Here to chat about it all is none other than the great Michelle Danner. Michelle, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Michelle, it it seems like there's just so much to talk about with your life and show business, but I'd like to start at the beginning. Uh, if I'm not mistaken, you are truly a child of many cultures. What what, what was life like grow- for you growing up? Well, I have felt that I had a very artistic childhood. My father opened the very first offices of the William Morris Agency, which is now William Morris Endeavor, in nineteen in the sixties in Paris. And I was a little girl and I would go with him to work. I was very, very close to my dad and I would play under his desk and play in his office while all these big stars would come in and talk about their careers, talk about their dreams. And I was very early on drawn to literature. So I would read quite a lot. As a matter of fact, in my closet, I created a whole reading, um, you know, place And uh, I would go to museums and I would go to the theater and I would go to see films. And I was just passionate at a very early age about storytelling, great stories. And uh, my childhood provided me that, a very eclectic array of art all around me. How big was the William Morris Agency at the time your father took that job in Paris? Was it kind of at the very beginning or was it it already really established? It was off the uh, Champs-Élysées. I remember, you know, white marble and fireplaces. And, you know, it was quite, you know, they represented all the the big stars at the time. And he opened those very first offices. And then he went on, he stayed with them for quite a while. And then he went on and opened, you know, his own own office. And he spearheaded uh, many other stars, Julio Iglesias and, um, you know, the Harlem Globetrotters and all the boxing, Muhammad Ali, Frazier Foreman. So he also was very eclectic in, in what he picked to promote. Do you remember anything about the move? I mean, was the family excited about going to Paris? Were you excited? Oh, well, yes, except, you know, the little French kids were brutal and they tortured me. They called me La Petite Américaine, the little American, <clears throat> and they frogs in my bag and pull my hair. Um, but I found my way in. I started to write plays and put together evenings of poetry and dance. And I adapted uh, this famous novel, The Queen's Necklace, Alexandre Dumas, which has made, been made into movies and TV shows. And I adapted that for the school and cast all the kids. And, the, you know, teachers loved me. And also I made them crazy because I revolutionized everything. But uh, I was always putting something together, an event together. So I went from being, you know, the little American girl that they would bully and torture to like the most popular girl in school because they all wanted me to cast them. 
What was um, life like growing up around your dad? And I mean, specifically around show business, you were talking about some of the people your dad was working with back then. I mean, did, did, did anyone ever come around the house for dinner whom you look back on years later and went, wow, I had no idea just how unique or how special that was. Oh, yes, yes. We had a lot of very big celebrities come to dinner. Um, you know, there was Edith Piaf. Marlena Dietrich didn't come. Um, Mohit Chevalier, a lot of like iconic people, Charles Navour, um, a lot of actors. And, you know, they would uh, go to the kitchen and gather whatever they could and make a big bowl of rice with whatever they could find in the refrigerator and in the kitchen. And there was a piano and they would play songs and laugh and tell stories. And so I was privy to those evenings, to those afternoons. It was actually sometimes entire days. Um, so my dad was a wonderful, wonderful dad, as was my mom. They're both passed away, my mom very recently. Um, I remember one morning when my dad was in Tokyo and he flew in especially to take me to school. So I see this big black car pulling in the driveway. We lived in this French castle. And he oh, wow. just literally came to take me for my first day of school. I think it was the eighth grade. And then he went right back, back on the plane to go close a deal in Tokyo. So this is the kind of stuff, even if, you know, the fact that he traveled a lot when I was a child, but this is the memorable things that you remember. Every time he called, he remembered what test I had to take, what class I was, you know, taking. Um, my mom was more a mo mom at home. But um, yeah, it was my parents. What was wonderful about the upbringing that they gave me is that they didn't impose anything on me. They let me find my way. And I had a certain freedom. On one hand, you know, maybe a child longs for a little bit more structure. But on the other hand, that freedom, I think, made me who I am today. And I found myself, they weren't necessarily the parents that took me to museums, although they took me to the Palais of Versailles many Sundays. Every time somebody would come to visit, you know, we'd take them to the Palais de Versailles. Um, but they... You know, I went on my own. I had a freedom to go on my own and explore. And they never, they didn't say no to me and the things that I wanted. So I had this very, you know, free childhood. And I presume you probably got to watch your dad go through some of the highs and lows of the industry. I know you've talked before about the image of him sitting on the edge of his bed, drinking a scotch, staring into space. I mean, it's kind of a cinematic image actually um was it was it kind of a foregone conclusion in your home that most of the kids would be artistic or work somehow in the business or did your parents ever voice a desire for you to do something different or i mean was that freedom like you talked about earlier to do whatever you wanted were you steered in a direction steered a, a, away from something no that it was if you know in a way maybe i could have been guided more because i was very free to find my way and and find my way i did um, yes, there were a lot of ups and lows. I mean, I remember a limo, you know, we were flying to Rome first class, a limo taking us to this beautiful vacation spot in Italy called Viareggio, where we had, you know, a waiter service lunch on the beach with white gloves and they would bring the telephone because there were no cell phones at the time. They would bring the telephone to my dad on the beach. Um, and then I remember, you know, in New Jersey, there was a time where the electric bill wasn't paid. And my dad bounced a check at the market. So they were the highs and the lows for sure. But we had many highs. And yes, there were moments where my dad struggled. 
And he, you know, yes, it's an image where he sat at the editor of the bed with a little scotch. He wasn't, you know, a drinker. But, you know, those were the tough moments. You knew when he sat there with the glass of scotch, he was having a hard time. Um, and so there were big highs and big lows. <laughs> did, did you get to watch lots of French cinema growing up? I mean, did you have any, like, favorite movies or actors or actresses oh, from that time? Very much so. Jean-Paul Belmondo and Alain Delon and Jean Gabin and uh, Simone Signoret and Isabella Gianni. And, oh, there's a, the list goes on and on and on. Extraordinary actors and, and performers. And I would go to the movies all the time. And I would watch television all the time. Uh, I love French cinema. I love Italian cinema. I mean, there's so many great things to see. You know, the, sp the power of story is something that always, you know, found a place in my heart. Was there maybe a specific film or play that kind of sealed the deal for you and made you go, uh, that, this is what I want to do. I want to work in show business. Well, I loved uh, Antigone by Jean Anouilly, Antigone's story, that Greek tragedy was very dominant and Electra. Um, so yeah, I worked a lot on that and the modern adaptation of that. And in terms of movies, I think I loved Gone with the Wind. That was a, a big movie that I loved. Um, yeah, that really, you know, I remember going to see it to the, uh, the movies or Young Frankenstein. I loved that when I was a teenager. Uh, I was always had very eclectic tastes. You can't pin, pin the taste because I always like to watch everything. Now, very I, much I, like now, as a matter I, of fact. And now you really can watch like, every, I mean, with streaming and everything, there's just so many things you can see of every genre at any moment at just a click, you know? Yeah. It's great. It's just, it's a huge library, a vast library of very diverse storytelling. And it makes the days, you know, quite enjoyable, something to look forward to. I always check in with my kids and go, what are we watching tonight? And it's a great way at the end of the day, especially if you've had, you know, a day where you're dealing with, frankly, any aggravation whatsoever for you to unwind and, you know, and just decompress. You know what I mean? And it's 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 a fantastic art form for that. Now, if I'm correct, at some point you moved to New York to study acting under none other than such a luminary as Stella Adler. Did you know who she was before sitting under her teaching? Absolutely. I knew she was an iconic teacher uh, and also Uta Hagen and uh, wonderful teachers that taught at HB Studios on Bank Street downtown. Mm -hmm. Steven Strumpel, Herbert Bergdorf himself. Uh, and there were some wonderful teachers at Stella Adler's school as well. Her, of course, uh, her famous script interpretation class. Yes, I, I feel very uh, privileged to have learned from these wonderful, wonderful teachers. Now, w what was it like kind of learning under her? I mean, did it feel like a legend or icon was speaking every time she set to talk to you guys? Or after a while, did you guys just go, oh, well, that's just her? You know what I mean? D did, did, it, did it ever become normal? Yes, I, you never felt like you knew enough. So she inspired you to go learn more, which is exactly the point. I was a sponge wanting to learn. And I remember taking the subway at the time and doing scenes, you know, Julia, the scene from the movie Julia, where I brought like a coat, a heavy coat and crutches and, and a box. And I think at some point everything fell out of my hands. And I thought, well, this is where you get to pay your dues. But um, I had... Uh, 
I, I was very lucky to study with these teachers and be inspired. Just be inspired to go out in the world and contribute something to the conversation. Do you have a, a, maybe a favorite story of Stella or from one of or from of your time there? Well, I remember a distinct moment where we all, um, you know, you, you applauded for her when and then she and we were not applauding hard enough or you know passionately enough. And she said, no, this is not how you do it. This is how you do it. And she was teaching us, you know, how to applaud and respect her. You know, I, I think one misconception people outside the industry have involves the idea of acting as a as a skill. I think a lot of people just imagine it as some innate, something innate, like apart from that, apart from learning the line, there really isn't a lot to practice for it, but obviously that's not the case. I mean, there's obviously a lot of skills that are involved, you know, in acting, right? Absolutely. There's a craft to learn. And people, everybody thinks, oh, it's easy. I can do it. Well, yes, but there's a craft to learn. And you have to think of it also as a technician with a toolbox, except I call it the golden box, which is what Sandy Meisner said. And every individual actor has the key to their unique toolbox, where they not only gather tools that help them to interpret a character, break down a script, but also lessons that they learn when they work on set, on stage, and also life lessons. All of those, all of that gold goes into that toolbox. And depending on what project you're working on, what character you pick from there. Recently, as you said, I had the, you know, the wonderful, um, you know, uh, a wonderful time working with Abigail Breslin, who is, you know, ingrained in our pop culture as Little Miss Sunshine. And of course, she's worked, you know, her whole life. I mean, she's worked, I'm sure, when she came out in diapers. No, I mean, she's like a born actress. It's in her her DNA. So, and she played a difficult character in this last movie that I directed, Miranda's Victim. And to watch her go into her toolbox was was really great. She never stopped impressing me. Yeah, I find it kind of interesting that there are so many kind of different schools of, or or should I say methods of acting? You know, I mean, some might even say it's academic in the same way learning music is. And you were talking about the, uh, and I was going to ask you about the the golden box method and how you describe it. And I think you kind of very aptly, aptly did. Um, now, because of that you've had some truly incredible stars come through your acting classes. Uh, I think uh, Henry, what, Henry Cavill, Penelope Cruz, Gerard Butler, Isla Fisher, hundreds more. Obviously, those, those actors were uh, private coachings, yes. Obviously, they're all incredibly talented, but I'm curious if any of the people, if there's anybody that comes to mind that you've either taught or coached that surprised you at just remarkably how insanely talented they are. Uh, you know, I feel very privileged to have worked with a group of incredibly talented actors. For instance, I did work with Chris Rock for a little while, and uh, he is incredibly talented. I just saw his comedy special. He's he's just, you know, excellent. Um, I, mean, I worked with a lot of wonderful people. And yes, I'm always blown away, not only by their talent, but by something that Stella Adler said that I recognize in many, which is a talent for the talent which means that not only do you have to have talent, because a lot of people do, but you have to have the desire of the work ethic to nurture the talent. 
And um, I think that that's very important. And I think one of the things I've found is that there's, there is a different aura, like a different essence around people who have that talent in the, in the things that I've worked on. There have been some people who just, they, they just walk into a room and it just the, the presence, they just command. It's just there. It just oozes out of them almost. It's, it's crazy. Absolutely. It's an energy. It's a desire to share something. It's a desire to be alive. It's a desire to feel yourself emotionally. It's a combination of many things. Are there any of the people who you've worked with who are particularly known for one genre who you think would actually be incredible in a totally different genre? You know, like... Yes, I think at heart, every actor wants to stretch. They want to have range. So if an actor is really good with comedy, like, for instance, Adam Sandler, you know, he challenged himself. And I like him very much in all the more serious roles. Or Jim Carrey. Um, Every actor longs to to challenge themselves, raise the bar to, you know, stretch, as I said. I think Robin Williams is probably a fantastic example of that. Great example, yes. Um, I know you speak more than one language. Does being bilingual or multilingual have any benefit uh, as an actor apart from the obvious ability to speak different languages? I mean, to me, it seems like people who are bilingual process and think things through maybe differently than somebody who isn't? Well, you can, you know, as I've coached different people, different actors from all over the world and have traveled internationally with my class, my master class, The Golden Box, I extensively went to Mexico several times and South America, Lima. Um, You know, I went to, where did I go? I went to Panama. I went to Guatemala. I went to Colombia several times, I think three times. Um, You know, it's great to be able to teach in Spanish. I've gone to Paris several times. It's great to teach in French. Uh, it's great to teach in Italian and Portuguese. It's great, you know, you reach more people. I think as a filmmaker, you want to reach the biggest classroom in the world. And as a teacher, as an acting teacher, you want to do the same. And you want to inspire a young generation, the next generation, to be, you know, the most incredible artists that they can be to reach their potential, to fulfill their destiny. And that's what the mandate is. That's what the mission is. So, um, it's been great to speak those languages absolutely and to be able to teach in all those languages. Yes. So you, you've had this wonderful career teaching and, and working across show business. So what was the key moment? At what point do you go, okay, you know what? I'm going to start looking for directorial work now. When did that shift happen for you? Yes. When I worked on a couple of features, a couple of independent movies as an actor, you know, I always say that if you're directing stage, um, you can, uh, the actors, it's the actor's medium. So the director can, at you know, the last rehearsal before you're about to open, you say, here, the play's yours, take it. It's your play. And so it's theater is not necessarily at that point a director's medium. It's an actor's medium. But when it comes to directing film, the director is the one that gets to sign the painting, pick the size of the canvas, the colors, the textures, how it's going to be interpreted. And so the actor, when it's a wrap on set, it's the actor that can go have postpartum depression uh, because then, it's, you know, the director gets to sign it. And 
So I realized, oh, well, I would like to be the one to sign it. I want to be the one to tell the story. And so that's what drew me to, um, that's what drew me to want to direct. It's storytelling. Um, very, very excited about that possibility. I'm so sorry. I hear a bing or something that I can't turn off. Uh, they're not coming up on my end, so we're good. Oh, good. I'm so glad. Um, so I am, uh, yeah, I keep being inspired and I keep, you know, um, I just uh, signed on to direct a big feature film. Uh, I feel that you have to put yourself as an artist always in a place that doesn't quite feel comfortable. It's not comfortable, but that's how you grow. And I like to challenge myself. And I'm happy that at this point in my life, I am able to keep doing things that are more and more difficult. And because I am the mother of two kids, I'm happy to show them that. Because I think ultimately it's what it's about. You have to live life in a place that feels that, you know, you do things that scare you and you do them anyway. Obviously not putting yourself, you know, at risk. Uh, I always I showed my kids uh, early on the movie Whiplash. And I said, you know, you have to bleed, but um, metaphorically. Well, anybody can play it safe. Yes, and it's important to be unsafe. Yeah. That's right. Your directorial debut came with How to Go Out on a Date in Queens with Jason Alexander. How did that particular opportunity come about? Um, so I had done these plays on stage, and I thought, oh, it would be great uh, to see if we could have them intersect. Uh, there's never been a movie called How to Go Out on a Date in Queens. I thought it was fun. It was really my equivalent of going to film school. I didn't go to film school. Um, so that was my equivalent. That's how I learned. And I asked these wonderful actors, Ron Perlman and Jason Alexander and Isai Morales and Rob Estes and Alison Eastwood and Kimberly Paisley mm -hmm. to be in it. They said yes. And just played and had fun. It was just a little, little fun movie. My equivalent of going to film school. So your next feature film would be in, I think, 2012 with Hello, Herman, starring Norman Reedus. That movie was filmed and debuted right on the uh, right kind of at the cusp of Norman becoming a sensation for his role as Daryl Dixon in The Walking Dead. What was it like working with him? I mean, did you get a sense at the time that he was about to explode on the scene? Yeah, and he got a sense of that, too. I mean, I think he was about to start season three. And he was like, you didn't see it. And I'm like, no, I didn't see it. Let me watch it, of course. Uh, we had a very nice breakfast and nice Zooms because we wanted to check yeah. each other, feel each other out and see if we wanted to work together or not. But I'm glad that it worked out. You know, he came, he brought his heart to it. He's a very, very nice, nice person, really good actor. And uh, we had a great time. You know, we, we tried to, to, to do a movie to tell a story. And it was another independent movie. Um, but I'm always attracted to things that feel socially relevant. And because, like I said, my life changed when I had children, I am very drawn to something that has to do with our kids falling through the cracks, even now in Nashville. It's absolutely devastating. It's yeah. heartbreaking what happened um, with that shooting. And when you look at the pictures of these kids that will never have, you know, the continuation of, of their lives, 
it just, you know, it just makes me cry. And it takes, you know, it's like the play of Arthur Miller, All My Sons. It takes everybody to protect our kids. It does take more than a village. Um, so that really draws me. And I think that it's recurring in my work as a director, what happens when kids fall through the cracks. Um, how do you go about casting your films? A am I correct that you essentially do the casting yourself? I, I noticed that you often work with some of the same actors multiple times, the great, late, great Paul Sorvino being one of them. I did work. I have a lot of relationships with a lot of actors, um, of course. So I'm able to reach out directly to them and say, hey, do you want to come and play for a little bit? I did with Paul Sorvino. He was great. He also really came and played. He really cared about his work. He's a wonderful actor. I did two movies with him, one The Bandit Hound, a family movie. He was very good in it. He had a very funny improvisational scene with Jim O'Hare, another wonderful actor. And then I did uh, with him Bad Impulse, psychological horror thriller, Supernatural. And he played the devil, <laughs> which was great. And he was wonderful in that as well. And he will be missed. Yeah. Um, from the outside looking in, it feels like you've kind of come into the 20s, guns ablazing with your film, The Runner. How did that film come about for you? The Runner came about one night where I was watching a news show about how police enforcement were finding those kids that were doing some pots and drugs in school and forced them to go undercover so that they could capture the big drug kingpin, the big drug lord of, of where their town was. And of course, parents don't know about it and tragedies happen. And I immediately started to really be moved by it. And I started to write three pages of what could happen to a kid that would be put in that position. And I called uh, a friend of mine, screenwriter, J Jason Chase Terrell, and I said to him, let's write this, let's let's make this story, let's make this movie. And I found a kid that was perfect for it, a really wonderful actor in my class. One night, all the lights went out on the block. And so there were three scenes left, and I asked the students to hold up the phone with the light so they could finish the work. And he did this scene that brought chills and, to me. And I said, you know, I want you to read this story. I'm working, I'm developing this this movie. And he loved it. And the rest is history, except for one thing. It almost did not get made because we were going to push it, as many movies always get pushed, to April. And we ended up shooting it in December and then shooting the rest of it in January, February. And right before March, before the lockdown, so I had time, very, you know, quiet time to edit, which was a great learning experience um, because normally it's always like, you know, the urgency of getting it done you know, on the fast lane all the time. And I was taking my time and exploring more choices. And I realized, boy, if I can just bring this experience into everything that I do, that would be just great. Well, and it seems as if the the lead in in that film. I mean, he he seems like he's got a really bright future ahead. I mean, he I watched parts of that, and I mean, just I mean, riveting. Yes, after the movie, he ended up signing with, um, you know, with a big uh, agent in Hollywood, and he booked two movies with Ridley Scott. Um, and one is coming out now, Napoleon. He has a good part in it. I can't wait to see it. 
Let's chat about what we've all been waiting for, your incredible feature film, Miranda's Victim, which released in February. Um, I, I know I'm an attorney also, also aside from doing this, so I know the story already. Tell us, but I want you to tell us the story behind the film and how you became attached to direct it. So I am very interested, fascinated with crime stories. As a matter of fact, everybody, my whole family makes fun of me all the time because I watch all the datelines and the 48 hours and the forensic files and all of it. I'm fascinated about how someone can turn on someone and act on their dark side. So on a Sunday, I get the offer. I get this email saying, we'd like to offer you this movie. Well, you know, would you be interested? And I was like, wow, they must know that I did, that this is right up my alley. I think I even emailed that back. This is right up my alley. I feel like I did. And normally I wait till Monday to get into the office and, you know, we do emails and stuff, but I, I answered myself, which is very unusual. And I was immediately drawn to the story. And of course, immediately understood that nobody told the story before. It was completely unique. My last movie, The Runner, first scene in the movie, you have the right to remain silent. Anything will be held, you know, the whole thing. But I never questioned where did that come from? And so this movie tells us the story, how the Miranda rights came about. But at the core of it, there's a story of a very brave woman, 18 at the time, Patricia Weir, who defied everybody, took her power, and decided that she needed to speak the truth. Um, we The movie's not released yet. It'll probably be released in the fall. But it premiered as the opening night movie in the historical theater in uh, uh, Santa Barbara. Barbara the yeah. theater. And on last Thursday, it premiered in Tampa, Florida, at the Tampa Theater, another historical theater. So we played two historical theaters. One had 2,000 people. The other one had close to 1,000. And people really responded to the movie. They laughed at times. They were outraged. They cried, but everybody felt at the end when it said, you know, for every thousands of, you know, um, of rapes uh, and violations, only about five people, there's only five convictions. Uh, and that's a statistic that that is scary. And that is the reason why you should watch this movie. Well, and the statistics of how few people come forward to begin with, and then you apply the percentage of the convictions from those who come forward. It even reduces, you know, the number of, of, of people who, the percentage of people who commit, who actually get convicted even, I mean, it, it reduces even further. Exactly. That's exactly it. And, and I will say this about the film. I mean, my goodness, what a, what a cast you put together. Abigail Breslin, Donald Sutherland, Andy Garcia, Luke Wilson, um, you know, just to name a few of them, did did you know any of them personally before casting them and working with them on this film? Yes, I knew Enrique Morciano, who gives an extraordinary performance. As a matter of fact, I did my first movie with him, How to Go Out on a Date in Queens. And for every movie thereafter, I always called to find out if he was available. I always wanted to cast him. He's an incredible talent. Hmm. He was always busy. He's always working. And this time I called as well. Now he's not available till July. And I was shooting in June. And he said, I'm going to have them kill me off the show so I can come work with you again. <laughs> and he also studied with me uh, a very long time ago. I was his first teacher. And he said that I changed his life. And uh, 
I, I love him. He's such an incredible talent. Um, so I knew him. Uh, I met with Abigail Breslin in here in LA. And immediately we looked into each other's eyes and we said, we're going to do this together. We just had a wave of connection and wonderful energy. And uh, she's shooting a movie right now. Uh, she's an incredible talent. Donald Sutherland was always one of my very favorite actors. He reminded me of my father. So he was the first actor that said yes. And when he said yes, I really felt that I had angels looking over this movie. And my father was one of those angels. Um. And then Kyle McLaughlin was my son's idea because, uh, and, and I love Kyle McLaughlin. Yeah. Emily Van Cam and Josh Bowman were just also great. We've all watched the show Revenge that they were fabulous in. Uh, I've always loved Ryan Felipe, always loved Luke Wilson. Um, but one of the shows that's one of my very favorite shows is called The Killing. And in that show, uh, Mireille Nuss is the lead and Brent Sexton is the lead in the first season. And I love both their work. They're just beyond extraordinary actors. And I asked them both and they said yes. And they were my first choice. I got a lot of my first choices. Uh, I was just now Nolan Gold from Modern Family was in, in Florida. We did an NBC interview. And when um, he was my first choice and he came, he plays the very young love interest of Abigail Breslin. Um, and also this newcomer, Sebastian Quinn, who plays Ernesto Miranda, is quite fabulous. I'm sure I'm forgetting somebody, but, uh, oh, Dan Loria, who actually I did know, and I did another movie with him, Bad Impulse. Uh, wonderful Dan Loria, who I've admired his work for years and wonder years on Broadway and Lombardi. And he came in and played the part of the doctor. So, um, yeah, I mean, I, I don't even know what to say. I was just beyond lucky to get these extraordinary actors to come and, and tell this important story. What do you do as a director when you direct somebody like Donald Sutherland in a scene? I mean, do you just basically at this point just sit back and watch? Well, that's what I said. I said, what do you do? You do nothing. Yeah. But it doesn't work like that. You know, I'm working right now with Ann Archer, the wonderful Ann Archer. We're doing a virtual theater piece. And when you work with actors, you know, that have worked so much and that are, you know, legends and Donald is and Andy Garcia and you know, what can you say? But they long for you to say something. They want to say. And and so I always find a little something to say. And they welcome it. Uh, and they're happy. And they're happy to hear it. So I was, you know, I mean, I can't even tell you. That I was in shock that 100% of the actors, the wonderful actors that I called upon to come tell this story, took 100% of my notes. I was like, this is great. What was the most challenging scene you had to shoot in a film from your perspective? Oh, well, the rape scene, of yeah. course. We waited and I had allocated a whole day for that. I, I knew I was like, we're going to take it easy. We're going to take our time. Except for the fact that the two days before we shot the last day, there were thunderstorms in New Jersey. And every time there's a thunderstorm, you have to stop shooting and you have to wait. And so we lost time. And so it turned out now that I only had half a day to shoot the rape scene and I had to change locations. I had to go to the bus stop, go back to the bus stop. And it was a very challenging day. I remember early in the day thinking, I have no idea how I'm going to do this. I had 27 setups and I walked wow. onto the set. My first AD and my cinematographer said, no way, it's not going to happen. You have to prepare yourself. You've got to cut. 
And I just, I don't know, I heard a voice inside myself. I said, just watch me. We're going to make this happen. And I was very forceful that day, as I have been every other day. But I, I direct with more, you know, calm and nurturing. But that day I was just, okay, we're this here, that, this there. I was just, you know, let's go. And uh, I said, we're going to be out of this location at 11.30 p.m. And it's 11.25. I'm missing one shot. And I said, nope, bring police car here. Do that was my only chance. I would have never got that shot. Let's do it. I ended it exactly at 11.30 p.m. We moved to the beach to the location where we we're going to shoot the rape in, in the car. And we did not do a meal penalty. We were right on time. I started to shoot, except my director of photography said, no, we have to stop shooting at 4.30 because the light is going to come up and you're not going to get mm -hmm. any shots. I'm like, nope. We're going to blacken the car windows and we're going to shoot everything I need. And it was just, you know, it was tough because it was the rape. People were very upset. They would walk away. Nobody wanted to. It was a closed set. It was outside. But I was very, you know, I didn't want anybody to get hurt. And of course, we had a fight coordinator, but I was always moving the pillow for the head of Abby so she wouldn't get hurt. Um, and I was very like on it. And from 4.30 to 5.30, I went in with the steady cam, and I said, move it here, move it there, do this, do that. And we finished exactly at 5.30. It was apocalyptic as the sun was coming up, and it's a wrap. And I never ended up going to get another shot for the movie. I ended up getting everything that I needed in those, you know, five weeks of shooting. Uh, so it went really, really well. It's amazing how sometimes things fall together in those ways and sometimes with the happy accidents and all those other things how and 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 you know people who aren't necessarily in the industry don't always know exactly how some of these things come together in in such a way sometimes you got to take a gazillion shots to get something and then sometimes just falls and sometimes stressful situations like this force you to actually it, it brings out everybody in the right way you know what i mean it's just it's it's interesting how these things sometimes just fit together like that yeah. it was great energy that day and, and we got it all done it was great it was great shoot great cast great story i'm really excited and it was very well received in santa barbara and last week in tampa and i'm excited for a lot of people to see it when it comes out Oh, the reviews, the reviews have been just fantastic for those who've seen it on the festival circuit so far. And we got one yesterday that came out with ebert.com. And I guess that we were told Forbes is coming out this week. It's going to be good. And people are really responding to the movie and makes me really happy. Kind of bring this full circle. Is there anything that you've learned from watching your father work that you feel you've carried into these films? Yes, my father was a tremendous human being. He cared more about people than power. And so he always picked love. He always took the high road. He never badmouthed anybody. It was always about the art. It was always about the work. He considered producing being an art form, not business. And uh, so I think he was an artist at heart. And uh, my mother was too. My mother was a singer and a dancer. Uh, and also had a great heart. I think my parents, my mother, I think, tried to rescue every animal in New Jersey. I think my parents um, led with their hearts. And recently, I was doing an interview uh, for high school for my 13-year-old, and they said, you know, what's the most important thing that you hope he'll retain as he goes into high school? And I said, his humanity. I hope his sense of empathy. 
that's the most important thing because I think that that's what I got from my parents and that's what I want to pass down. So what's next for you? You mentioned that you've got another big project in the works. Is it something you're allowed to talk about or is it still kind Not of- Not yet because it's announced, it's announced next week. Um, it's going to be a big announcement. It's a big movie and I have um, a couple of other movies that I'm developing as well, some comedies. Uh, I'm excited about all of it. Equally, all of it. Uh, I think that the next few years I will be doing, you know, several movies and keep telling stories and also keep championing my son, who also is a filmmaker. And um, so I told him we're either going to be preparing something or we're going to be in the midst of doing it, shooting it or putting it together or marketing, but we'll be in one of all those phases. And this next month, I'm also going to teach quite a lot, which I'm excited about. Uh, I'm excited to go to Cannes. I'm excited to go to the Ischia Film Festival with Miranda's Victim. And uh, there's another big film festival we get in that I can't announce just yet. Um, so I'm excited about all of it. You know, it's uh, it's great to be able to be creative and be surrounded by the people that you love. Well, we'll look forward to hearing about the next big project once you're allowed to announce it. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining us, Michelle. Thank you so much. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, Michelle Daniel.